Have you ever wanted to play the perfect tabletop game where story beats run smoothly and there's no awkward pauses between dice rolls? Yeah, me too. But since that's impossible, I did the next best thing and novelized my Witcher tabletop game to showcase the story in its cleanest form. The result is this podcast. I'm Jacob Gerstel, and this is Tales from the Witcher. Part audiobook, part actual play, part serialized adventure, and a whole new way to vicariously enjoy tabletop games. Welcome to the world of The Witcher, where monsters roam freely and the continent is once again at war. If you were hoping to follow the plight of Gale to Rivia, however, I'm not going to be doing that. Instead, I offer you the story of a not-so-merry band of degenerates who are making their way across the continent. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. The Last Moment 1. Joanna stalked across the perfectly manicured lawn, ignoring the signs warning her to stay off. She was far from the only one breaking the rule. The lawn was dotted with students sprawled out on blankets, reading or chatting or drinking or kissing or sunning. None of them had a care in the world, it seemed. Joanna envied them. Joanna stalked past the ink pot, a favorite tavern of hers. Aisha had invited her to drink there the night before, but Joanna had declined. She needed to keep her mind fresh for tomorrow, she had said. Joanna supposed her friends had a great time last night, without a care in the world. Joanna envied them. Joanna envied everyone today, for today she had to defend her dissertation. The bright and gaudy colors of Oxenfurt appeared dim in Joanna's eyes. She passed by dozens of shops, stalls, and workshops selling garments and baubles not found anywhere else on the continent, for Oxenfurt was a cosmopolitan city. She brushed off a merchant who tried selling a blown glass vial from a fear, claiming it wouldn't shatter if dropped. She stalked by a portable grill where a man in a stained apron roasted what looked to be duck, but not of any variety found in the north. The smell made Joanna's mouth water. She stalked through the Oxenford Academy and stopped at the entrance of the Great Library. It was an imposing building, set in the middle of campus. Immaculately white, its frieze portrayed a wizened man with an open book speaking to an enraptured student tree surrounding him. Joanna always thought the design was uninspired and boring, like the majority of professors she'd studied under. Students and faculty passed through the great library's open wooden doors with the regularity of fish in a stream. Joanna had never seen those heavy doors closed. The great library, it was often said by the Chancellor, was always to remain open, for knowledge should never be shut out. The library had not even closed during the three northern wars, the Chancellor added proudly, a time of great strife. Joanna sat on one of the library's steps, She was early, as usual. She wondered what asinine questions the professor would ask about her dissertation. Joanna felt confident in herself and in her research. She was, after all, a fifth year, and had spent the last two years scouring historical records across the North for her dissertation, which she planned to publish after she graduated. A dwarf exited the library and brightened when he saw Joanna. He called to her, and Joanna waved back. She had shared a philosophy course with Pillock a few years back, and the two shared a mutual interest in ale. They became fast friends. What brings you here so early? Joanna asked as Pillock took a seat beside her. Don't you usually sleep until noon? Too much to study, too little time. 
Professor Yanis has an unhealthy obsession with Temerian law, circa 1235. Pillick stroked his black beard. And why the plow in hell are you here? I'm beneath the dais today. Pillick sucked in his breath sharply, an effective shorthand that described the stomach-churning experience of defending one's dissertation. Three professors sat on a dais and looked down on you as they peppered you with questions about your research. Every student who hoped to graduate had to do it at one point or another. Now it was Joanna's turn. Best of luck, kid, Pillock said as he stood up. He wiped his meaty hands on his pants and waved goodbye. I'll buy you a pint if you survive. I will. Thanks. The meeting room was underground, near the back of the stacks. Joanna took the circular stairs slowly, descending three levels and passing countless rows of texts, tomes, treatises, manuscripts, manifestos, and theses. The door was unassuming and could be safely ignored by any passerbys. Unless, of course, you were about to go beneath the dais. Joanna wasted no time. She knocked on the door and entered. Three professors sat at a long table on a raised platform. They were randomly selected by the department faculty, and the students never knew who would be judging them. On the left was Professor Strill from the Department of History. Joanna had taken a few classes with her, and the professor liked her and her insightful writing. Same with the bearded man in the center, Professor Rondelden from the Department of Philosophy. The last man, Professor Ladra from the Department of Natural History, had a fearsome reputation. Joanna had never taken a class with him, but heard he didn't suffer fools, and would regularly dress students down during his lectures. Joanna was not overly concerned. She knew she knew more on her topic than all three professors combined. Professor Rondelden smiled and beckoned Joanna to step forward. Welcome, welcome. Your name, please? Joanna Wernus, fifth-year student. Your department? Professor Ladra stared down his nose at Joanna. The Department of History, Professor. Professor Strill smiled softly at Joanna. She spoke gently. And what is the dissertation you're proposing? She already knew the answer, but had to ask out of custom. This whole silly process, Joanna couldn't help but think, was done out of custom, and was a total waste of time. I wish to write on the Mahakam Summit of 1272, specifically its impact on the Third Northern War. Professor Ladra's mouth split open in a grimace. An interesting topic, certainly well covered. The Mahakam Summit has interested many students who study the Third Northern War, and faculty, for that matter. That's why it interests me. I can shed new light on the subject. It's certainly a momentous event, Professor Rondelden said. It was the first time the Mahakam Dwarves opened their gates for any political delegation. They had remained, after all, firmly neutral in the first two Northern Wars. Yes, of course, Professor Ladra snapped. He turned back to Joanna. Well, go on, then. We listen with attentive ears. Joanna hoped that was the case. She didn't like repeating herself, and the sooner she was done, the sooner she could get her dissertation officially approved, and get back to work. Things looked dire for the North in the spring of 1272, she started. The Novgardian Empire, led by Imperator Emir Var Emrys, had conquered the kingdoms of Lyria and Rivia with ease. Queen Meave of Lyria was once again leading partisans in a guerrilla war, but it did little to stop the empire from crossing into the kingdom of Edirne to... Miss Wernus, your dissertation will have nothing to do with Lyria, Professor Ladra said. Stick to the relevant facts, please. Joanna hid her annoyance behind a smile. Of course. The unconquered kingdoms of the North, having successfully repelled Nilfgaard in the Second Northern War when they banded together, decided to hold a summit to discuss an alliance. The Mahakam Mountains were chosen to hold the summit, given its defensibility. The kingdoms of Edirne, Temeria, Redania, Sidorus, and Skellige arrived by the early summer of 1272. 
the kingdom of Kedwin, for reasons still argued about to this day, decided to stay in the neighboring town of Kalmek for two days longer than intended, and so they were late and the last to arrive at Crag Ross, the site of the summit. 2. They would have missed the path that cut directly into the mountain range. It was well hidden by rocks, and only by looking at it from a certain angle could one see a discernible path. The road itself was narrow, and ran straight into the shadows of the mountain. They would have missed this, but Zevo had a map from Steldwill, an innkeeper from the town of Ashford, and this map led them down the path. There was little sun left, but everyone decided to soldier on. This was partly due to necessity, as no one was sure if the Nilfgaardian raiders, or Zevo's old Hansa, were still hunting them. Mostly, though, no one wanted to linger another night. They'd been traveling to Mahakam for weeks now, and wanted to get the damned journey over with. So Zevo, Ethramel, Jeremiah, Carmignola, and his cat Otto, and Tabek rode single file up the narrow mountain path. Jeremiah shivered at the evening breeze and pulled his cloak around him a little tighter. His horse Ingot didn't seem to mind the cold. He plodded on slowly as the path wended its way up the mountain in sharp switchbacks. Jeremiah told himself not to look over the edge. He couldn't resist. The sun set behind the mountains, casting long shadows over the level ground they started from just an hour ago, far, far below. One slip, Jeremiah couldn't help but think, then a long drop, followed by a quick death. The craftsman felt his nerves start to fray. Jeremiah shivered and thought on the warmth of the dwarven forges he would be working at. Mother Lana's letter would grant him access to the finest crafters in the world, though he was now duty-bound to work in the name of the Church of the Eternal Fire. Jeremiah didn't mind that. Coin was the same, no matter who paid it. There's light up ahead, Zevo called back, for he led the procession. Jeremiah tilted his head and squinted. They had ridden back and forth for at least an hour, and saw no signs of life or civilization. But up ahead were two pinpricks of light. Come on, Ingot, he said. Not much further now. The lights were from two torches, and it marked a guard outpost. Two dwarven defenders, dressed head to toe in dark iron mail and leaning on square shields almost as tall as them, stood at a narrow mountain pass. The road they were on widened to a small plateau, thankfully. As they approached, one of the defenders yelled at them in a thick Mahakam accent. Halt! Not one step further, if you please. What's your business here? Does every plowing guard have to ask that? Jeremiah thought. He took it upon himself to lead. He rode past Zevo and said, We're here on official business. I wish to speak with the Redanian political delegation that's gathered here. Aye, the defender said. Dismount and leave your weapons on your horse. Walk towards us, slowly, and show some verification. Jeremiah dismounted. Being a little cautious, aren't we? Orders, the second defender said. Perhaps a woman given the higher pitch. But it was impossible to tell, as her beard was just as long as the other defenders. Mahakam doesn't open its doors to just anybody. Only sanctioned traders and diplomats, typically. Jeremiah recalled Zevo saying something along those lines earlier in the day. Mahakam was a famously reclusive kingdom, and typically only opened its doors during their world-famous ale festival, which occurred every 25 years. Jeremiah had never been to one, but very much wanted to. Jeremiah produced Lana's note and handed it to the first defender. He studied it, then handed it back. Denied. Jeremiah shook his head, as if he had misheard. I'm not sure you understand. That's an official letter from a priestess of the Church of the Eternal Fire, granting me the right to craft in the Church's name. Aye, and nowhere does it say you're to meet with the Redanian delegation. 
Mother Lana told me to speak with Sir Isaac of the Order of the Flaming Rose in order to... I don't give a toss what your mother said. Your access is denied. Now please return to your horse. The second defender hefted a hand axe, and Jeremiah decided not to argue. He returned to Ingot and said to the others, I don't think they'll be letting us in. Plow that, Ethramel said. I'm not going down that path again, especially in the dark. Jeremiah didn't fancy that either. He resisted the urge to look over the edge of the mountain. What can we do? They only accept sanctioned traders and diplomats. And, if you get right down to it, we're nobodies. Allow me. Carmagnola dismounted Lampsy and strode towards the defenders. They spoke in hushed tones, and the doctor handed one of them a letter. After a few moments, one of the guards disappeared. He returned with a dark-bearded dwarf in a gray tunic. He spoke with Carmagnola, who then waved everyone over. What the fuck did he say? Ethramel said with disbelief. The dark-bearded dwarf introduced himself as Skedrick, captain of the Crag Ross outpost. I see y'all have business with the Redanian delegation. Not all of us, Zevo said before anyone could respond. I'm a witcher looking for work. What in the hell is wrong with you? Jeremiah couldn't help but think. Why couldn't Zevo go along with a lie for once in his damn elongated life? Skedrick, surprisingly, didn't turn them away. He nodded and said, Those looking to conduct legitimate trade can stay in the traders' quarters. Would anyone else prefer to stay there? I would, Ethramel said. Tabek quickly agreed. Jeremiah couldn't fault them for that. The Redanians weren't known for their tolerance of magic, especially since the incident at Loch Muin, where a lodge of sorceresses were uncovered trying to assassinate the northern kings. King Radovid V of Redania, understandably, made it a point to hunt down any and all sorcerers. Follow me, then. I'll lead you through. They rode single file through another mountain pass, though this one was level. It was lit with a half-dozen torches on each side, held in sconces and attached to smooth walls. Jeremiah didn't need to be a craftsman to see that this path was carved out by skilled hands. It ran a few furlongs before opening into a square plateau nestled into the mountain range. Jeremiah wondered how long ago the dwarves crafted this defensible position. Explains why no one tries to invade Mahakam, he thought. A stout keep was built into the rock face to their right. A few armored dwarves were playing a game of Gwent on a wooden barrel, shouting various wagers and one-upping each other's bets. One of them smacked a stave against the side of the barrel, and the defenders stood at attention, scowling at the newcomers. Skedrick waved at the defenders, and they slowly returned to their game. Not much further, their guide said. The plateau was similarly well lit, and arrow slits were carved into the rocks surrounding them. Two stone doors were nestled into the mountain on the far end. They were intricately carved with blue runes, and were the size of two rock trolls stacked on top of each other. Blasting powder might have blown the doors open, Jeremiah thought, but even that was a gamble. Skedrick told them to wait near the door, and shuffle towards what looked to be the end of a brass horn jutting out of the wall. Skedrick spoke into the horn in Dwarven, and a gruff voice responded. Skedrick raised his voice, and his companion matched his anger. Both stopped abruptly, and Skedrick flashed a thumbs up. I don't think I'll ever understand dwarves, Carmagnola muttered. They were wonderful people, Zevo said with a smile. A deep rumbling followed, and the stone ground shook beneath Jeremiah's feet. Skedrick waited patiently for the doors to open fully inward before beckoning them. On behalf of High Thane Bruver Hoog, I'd like to welcome you to Crag Ross. By the gods, Jeremiah thought, the dwarves must have hollowed out the whole damned mountain. The Great Hall was bigger inside than the craftsmen could have imagined, so high he couldn't see the ceiling. It was shrouded in shadow, and not from lack of light. Indeed, 
Great roaring braziers, evenly spaced along the walls, illuminated everything, from the two rows of thick stone columns that rose into the shadow, to the stone shops carved into the rock, to the stone road in front of them that led deeper into the mountain. The entryway was quiet, but the sounds of ringing hammers and shouting matches and heavy drums with tinny brass instruments reverberated throughout the hall, giving it a wonderful, expansive quality. Just this way, Skedrick said, obviously enjoying their awestruck expressions. The trader's quarter was just down the hall. Then we'll head to the diplomat's quarter. May I ask, Jeremiah said to Skedrick as they walked, how you get those heavy stone doors to open? They must weigh several tons each. Simple mechanics, Skedrick said, and left it at that. The hall led to a four-way cross-section, and they headed left down another hall that looked much the same. The sound of arguments and music grew. The trader's quarters was twice as large as the plateau outside, and lined with shops carved into the walls. Wooden carts were haphazardly scattered, and humans and elven merchants milled about, loudly haggling with one another over the prices of fish and jewelry and leather tomes. Pairs of Mahakam defenders guarded the two pathways, one way in and one way out. The Cragross Traders Quarter Inn and Tavern is right there. Skedrick pointed to one of the stone buildings. You'll need an escort if you wish to go anywhere outside of the quarter. Best of luck with your trade. You two with me. Jeremiah and Carmagnola bid farewell and continued down another hallway at the other end of the Traders Quarter. This hallway looked the same as the others and ended in a circular center that looked the same as the Traders Quarter. Jeremiah started to realize the dwarves enjoyed regularity in their design, impressive as it was. The diplomat's quarter had none of the raucous energy of the trader's quarter. This quarter was much more segregated. There were six distinct camps, marked by clusters of tents with canvas the color of the kingdom it represented. Jeremiah spotted camps representing Edirn, Temeria, Redania, Sidorus, and a far smaller camp representing the island kingdom of Skellige. Skedrick pointed them to the Redanian camp, signified by its red and gold coloring. If the camps were sized based on the wealth and military power of the kingdom it represented, Redania would have been the biggest, but it was roughly the same size as the other camps. Same rules apply, Skedrick said. You need an escort if you wish to leave the quarter. Best of luck in your political business. The dwarf left them with that. Jeremiah and Carmagnola looked at each other, shrugged, and headed to the Redanian camp. So what business do you have with Redania? the craftsman asked. That's my concern, not yours, Carmagnola said, a little frostier than Jeremiah expected. He didn't pursue the matter further. The doctor was right. It wasn't his concern. Jeremiah spoke with a Redanian soldier, who directed him to one of the larger tents. A large man with coal-black hair and close-set eyes stepped out. He wore a red tabard with the sigil of a red rose engulfed in yellow flame. He eyed Jeremiah suspiciously, his hand resting on the pommel of his sword. Sir Isaac, I presume? Yes, and who do I have the pleasure of speaking with? Jeremiah Keller, an official representative of the Church of the Eternal Fire. Sir Isaac squinted at Jeremiah. He didn't look to be one to mince words. That's so. In what capacity? As a craftsman. This should explain it all. Isaac read Mother Lana's letter carefully, then folded it up just as carefully and handed it back to Jeremiah. I suppose a welcome is in order. I hope you find your stay here fruitful. I'm sure I will. Jeremiah grinned and rubbed his palms together. I'd like to start my work tonight, if you'd be able to provide escort to one of the forges. No, Isaac said flatly. It's late, and we need rest. I'll speak with Lady Olivia tomorrow and see about an escort. In the meantime, you can stay with us. We likely have a spare cot somewhere. 
He's got as much emotion as the Witcher, Jeremiah thought. But he didn't let that sour his mood. He was, after all, in a craftsman's paradise. Mahakam. After so much time trying to reach the mountains, it almost didn't seem real. Jeremiah bowed. It would be my pleasure. Thank you for your hospitality. Jeremiah slept well that night, like a man who had, after years, finally settled all his old debts, and wasn't looking to accrue any more. That'll do it for this episode of Tales from the Witcher. This podcast is written and produced by Jacob Gerstel. The Witcher novels are by Andrzej Sapkowski, The Witcher games are by CD Projekt Red, and The Witcher tabletop RPG is by R. Talsorian Games. The music is by Eric Matias at soundimage.org. Be sure to leave a rating and a review, and to spread the word of this podcast far and wide. You can follow the podcast at Tales Witcher Pod on X or at talesfromthewitcher.buzzsprout.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you again next week.